The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Ziptility, the only app utility crews need to find, fix, and manage infrastructure assets from the field. By Intera, geoscience and engineering solutions. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Waterworks Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. And by Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. This is session 175. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGipsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. And I hope again this uh, podcast finds you safe and healthy amidst the public health crisis we're still finding ourselves in. Uh, today we continue a streak of tremendous guests. We welcome Jim Schleiman to the podcast. Jim is Black and Veach's Director of Planning and Water Resources and he does not disappoint. This interview is tremendous. Jim provides rock solid information on climate change planning for utilities and does so in a common sense manner so you can see how it integrates into the big picture of utility planning. This is a terrific interview. Uh, but first, a little housekeeping, a hearty thank you to our sponsors again, Ziptility, Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, and Black and & Veatch. And I'd like for you to do me a favor. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at that sponsor's firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks will go. Uh, and just to, to demonstrate this, I just had a sponsor thank me profusely for making them look good sponsoring the podcast because someone had thanked them for their sponsorship of the podcast. So that, that just reaching out does make a difference. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know how you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. That would be greatly appreciated and truly helps others find out about the podcast. Uh, no new ratings or reviews on Apple Podcasts this week, uh, but I did receive a note of thanks from a listener. So this isn't uh, a publicly available review, but the listener authorized me to use kind of an abridged version of his or her note on the podcast. And here's the abridged version of what the listener said, quote, I'm starting my third semester at school X. It is going very well, though things are quite different this semester. I'm taking a course in water policy and economics with Dr. Y we'll call him. Uh, he is a very good professor, and I feel like I've already been primed in most of the course material from listening to your podcast over the last two years. So that kind of message just makes my day uh, The you know that people find the podcast useful. This is just a small component of the democratization of water data and information, and I'm just proud to be playing a role in it. Uh, before we get to Jim Schleyman, uh, which is coming up real soon, uh, we do have a Bluefield on Tap segment this uh, this week. And we are going to uh, talk with Reese Tisdale, Bluefield's president, uh, about some M&A activity in the water sector. So get ready for this. One. Well, Reese, welcome back for another Bluefield on Tap segment. How are you doing today? Pretty good, Dave. Pretty good. Just uh, living the dream. Doesn't have to be my dream. Just something <laughs> about that. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, 
a lot has happened since uh, we last talked last time. I think we talked a little kind of about how essentially how main street is doing, you know, utilities and revenues and things like that. What about wall street? What about business activity that has been going on uh, in, in the water markets? What's, what are you guys seeing there? So I would say a couple of takeaways. One is when we speak to our clients, particularly those on the supply side or engineering firms, they seem to, they're doing well still. Um, everybody still is pretty optimistic, a little surprising giving sort of the, the broader uh, market outlook for state budgets, municipal budgets, uh, and revenues. So that's one aspect. I think people are still positive, but I guess the question is everybody's waiting for the shoe to drop and when that will be. So I'd be on the lookout for those signals. Secondly, there's been some deal flow as well. Um, I would say the more recent deal um, that at least we've discussed internally at Bluefield, and that is Schneider Electric or Aviva, which they own, is um, they just acquired OC Soft, which is an enterprise software uh, player that sort of collects, gathers, analyzes data broadly across utilities, not just water, but all other infrastructure utilities. And then we've also seen uh, Danaher acquired Aquatic Informatics, a much smaller deal. And we've also seen um, SAR just acquired a Dutch utility services provider. Grunfos acquired another one. So there's the deal flow seems to be, I would say, picking up. I would say it's been pretty good, though, uh, generally speaking. Do you have any insight as to what, what's driving it? Because you, you would think that with COVID, right, you know, the revenues are down. I mean, revenues, you know, earnings have been terrible this, this season, right? Down. Yeah. And so are, are people just kind of, you know, getting out or are they making strategic acquisitions? I'm sorry to cut you off, but I was just kind of curious, you know, what's no, going on. No, not cutting me off at all. I would say two things. I think you raise a good point is we're going through quarterly reports now. You're starting to see the impact on revenues. Some have done better than others. You know, when you look across, whether it be Danaher, Xylem, Evoqua, uh, Violi, and Suez, those, the, the pain is starting to be shown, at least on those purchases, um, at least in their quarterly reporting. Um, but I would say one thing that's interesting in just the deals that I mentioned is two of those, the Schneider and Danaher deals, they've acquired – what I would call, you know, these are platform players. These are the large uh, uh, broad-based players that are positioned across the value chain uh, in some respects. But they've acquired, um, you know, we've talked a lot, fair amount about digital acceleration and the need for data, data management, not just within industry silos, but more broadly. And so those two companies, OCSoft and Aquatic Informatics, well, a little different and definitely in scale. Um, they basically take all the data across not only just SCADA systems, but across the utility as a whole and try to provide a better um, enterprise solution for the utilities, you know, so which is different over the past couple of years. We've seen a lot of technology and solutions players zeroing in on specific silos, whether it be, you know, network solutions or billing. Um, these guys take a, a broader approach. So that, I think that's interesting to see where that's going. 
um, the platform players can apply that across their businesses as a whole and sort of roll it up in their solutions. Secondly, I would also say everybody's interested or everybody, um, the Grunfos and the SAR deal out of France, they're both industrial focused. And that's of interest because there's some expectations that industrials are going to rebound, at least in select cases, more quickly than the municipal sector um, when and if it drops. And so the the rebound to be, and it's also just a diverse di diversification strategy. So um, getting a little bit away from municipal, but looking at industrials because they see high growth opportunities there. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know we've we've kind of talked in the past a little about convergence. You know, with uh, I think one of the highlights was Eversource's acquisition of Aquarian. We talked about that maybe a year or so ago, maybe a year and a half. Um, is is like for for example the OCS deal with Schneider Electric is that do you think a um a sign that convergence is not just within the utility companies but it's also the consultants and the the entities that are serving the water sector that are that are broadening and diversifying and and bringing all these kind of sectors you know gas electric water together yeah i mean i'd say it's sort of in the case of OSI Soft and Schneider, Schneider does everything. I mean, they're across all utility sectors. So it's, you know, would that be gas, electric, water? They're already there. Or there, is there something to be gained from one to the next in their, their synergies? Yes and no. I, I'd like to think that, you know, they all have, you know, power management needs, so they need to be managed. So I think maybe behind the scenes when it comes to R&D and solutions development, there are some benefits, um, you know, to your point about Eversource and, you know, acquire, acquiring Aquarian. I can't say Aquarian seems to still have been kept at arm's length, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. um, so to say that there are real gains to be made on the utility management side, not quite seeing it. But then again, you know, Aqua also with Peoples, you know, yeah. they came was that last year. So that's another one. There's this convergence of, um, you know, when you have shareholders, they want, is it growth or is there opportunity for diversification um, and provide more broad-based services? I certainly think that that's the case. Whether the dollars are being shown for it, I'm not sure yet. Yeah, yeah. All right, good deal. Well, what else is kind of, you know, uh, catching your interest in the, uh, in the, in the kind of the investment world, Wall Street world in the, in the water sector? Anything kind of standing out besides what we've already talked about? Well, I don't want to make a bigger deal out of this or a mountain out of a molehill, uh, make a bigger deal <laughs> than needs to be. But I would say, you know, we're getting a lot of questions. It's been in the news about Veolia, potential divestment of its water business in North America. Um, there's definitely interest there. Um, they actually have a large position among O&M service providers in the U.S. So there's that would be a platform play where you, someone could buy and potentially grow from there. If you're, as we've called them, outsiders looking in. The other one is also, you know, Inframark. They're owned by a private equity firm. You know, is there something to be had there down the road as well. That's another opportunity. But the Veolia one is one that's caught everybody's eyes. Yeah, that's certainly one to watch. Good deal. All right. Well, uh, Reese, thank you so much for coming on. As always, great information you've provided. So thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next time. All right, Dave. See you soon. All right. See you, man. Bye. Take care.
Well, as always, great information from Bluefield Research. Uh, now it's on to our feature interview with Jim Schleyman. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Jim, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, yeah, me too. I, it, I I'm really excited about uh, having you having the opportunity to have you on. Um, for those who don't know you, Jim, can you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Oh yeah, sure. So I'm I'm the director of planning and water resources in Black and Beach. But actually, kind of interesting as I was thinking about this particular question. Uh, you know, I was born in a farming community in Western Kansas, and so some of my earliest memories were actually of my mom and dad out in the middle of a farm field setting up the irrigation systems uh, to grow sugar beets and row crops and other things like that. So whether it's, you know, getting covered in mud or slinging mud at my sister, uh, that kind of thing, you know, I, I, I distinctly remember those uh, things from when I was three, four, and five. And and then kind of as I grew up, um, I actually farmed a lot for my summer job and ran some of the center pivots and irrigation systems for a farmer here locally within the Kansas City area. So as I got into college, you know, that environmental water type sector, especially engineering focus, was of uh, pretty uh, significant interest to me. You know, I had a lot of background. Uh, you know, water's kind of fascinating just because it's kind of pervasive, right? It's all across your life. you got all right. these memories. And so it was something that was meaningful and, and uh, meant something to me. And um, I just got into the industry, took a hydrology class, loved it. And kind of the rest is, you know, got into water resources when I joined Black and & Beach and kind of the rest is history. I mean, I've spent uh, 20 years of my professional life really focused on water resources and planning issues um, kind of pervasively across the, across the industry. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, interesting. You were, you were working on farms in, in Kansas. I assume those, the, the groundwater you were tapping was the Oglala. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it just, exactly. It just depends on where you are, right? In uh, Western Nebraska or Western Kansas, absolutely. And, and, uh, uh, Eastern Kansas, when I worked here in this area, it was the alluvial around the rivers, right? So it was actually pulling Kansas River water, Missouri River water from underneath underneath the rivers from those aquifers. So, um, you know, different conditions, uh, but it was always it was always there. It's always in my background. My mom even made the comment every time I take vacation pictures, water's almost always in the background. This is kind of part of the fabric of uh you know, I guess what makes me, me, yeah. 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 So uh, I, I think it's really fascinating that, that what I really want to talk about today with you is climate change adaptation and, and your background in water resources, I think is really going to instruct us pretty well in this. So can you kind of give us your kind of thumbnail on uh, what you see as the current state of, of climate change adaptation and readiness? Sure. You know, this climate change is uh, obviously a conversation that's been ongoing now uh, for some time. I would say uh, it used to be kind of this thing that was out there, right? It was 50 years out. It was 100 years out, right? And in the last 10 years, it's really collapsed. I mean, it is, it's here. It's now. Um, we have uh, – there are industries, utilities, municipalities that are actually actively planning for sea level rise, uh, increased floods, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not necessarily uniform across the industry. So I, I like to break it into two pieces. I think it's easier to kind of conceptualize or consume. Climate change, there's climate change that I view over land, right? So you municipalities, utilities, areas of the country that are not impacted by, say, coastal sea level rise. And so, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the things that will change there that you'll see is, you know, rainfall patterns are changing, 
Um, you know, more frequent droughts, more frequent floods, that kind of thing. Uh, impacts to water, aquifer storage, uh, especially as since the aquifers have been tapped for a long time anyway for, for source water. You know, any change to the rainfall patterns can exacerbate those problems. Uh, one of the other big issues that we see in the industry is, is snowpack changes. You wouldn't think, ah, uh, snowpack, you know, but the time uh, of the season in which it melts directly impacts when that water is available for use. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people know this, but, you know, coming out of the winter, 30% of California's snowpack, uh, 30% of California's surface supply is tied up in snowpack. So changes to the timing of when, you know, just a couple degrees of changes can significantly impact when that water comes off the system uh, and is available for, you know, storage and, and use. So, you know, that also impacts, you know, uh, Heat and humidity changes, right? The drier it is, the more prone things are to fire. So you see a lot of utilities trying to get their arms around how do they how do they plan for these uncertainties, right? These system vulnerabilities that are uncertain in nature, uh, that may be coming more uncertain in the future. You can't look to the past, right, to plan the future. You got to plan the future with some sensitivity tests, and we're seeing that. When you go to the coastal regions. All those same things are the same, are similar, but then you add on the additional complexities of sea level rise, storm surge, you know, even coastal erosion that uh, as, as the coastline potentially erodes, uh, you know, those storm surges get worse over time. And so uh, a number of, of uh, clients uh, that we see and work with are putting out, you know, resilience planning, resilience studies, uh, uh, resilience implementation plans about how do we how do we set the level of service goals, right? What does success look like in the future? And then what do we have to plan and implement to be able to mitigate those, those potential impacts? And so um, uh, the, the state of the industry, in my opinion, is a, a bit all over the board, but I would say is that if you go to places that are on like the front lines, right, the south beaches of the world, where they're actually having, in Charleston's of the world, where they're actually having uh, way more sunny day flood events from coastal seawater intrusion than they were even 25 years ago. They're having to do something. They're having to make changes. This is not some theoretical conversation anymore. It's actually uh, occurring and they're having to respond accordingly in their planning. And so that's where you see it first. Uh, and then it and then it starts to migrate into the other utilities uh, as as they're having to deal with those challenges. Right, right. You know, I, I, I think it's really interesting you were kind of pointing that out, pointing out of the erosion and things like that. I mean, where I'm based in Indiana, even uh, up around Lake Michigan, there's substantial erosion. Uh, that is, I mean, granted, that's, that's not a, a significant uh, percentage of Indiana's boundary, right? But it's still impacting the, the folks in that area. One other thing I wanted to, to touch base with you on was you mentioned snowpack. And from my non-technical, non-science perspective, I've, you know, I've heard, I've, I've read about the dust cover that, that can get on snowpack and how that impacts, uh, you know, the, the melt rate and things like that. Can you real quick, just, I, I think that's an important aspect to. Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you're kind of alluding to these feedback mechanisms or feedback loops, right? And dust is one of them and other things. So. You know, generally, uh, darker substances, right, absorb more heat energy from the sun, right? White reflects darker, you know, if you wear a black shirt on a sunny day, it gets a lot hotter than a white shirt. So if you have dust or any kind of substance that actually, you know, um, absorbs more of that heat, it can actually 
create that, you know, a, a situation where that snowpack melts even faster than it did before. And they're even having some of those issues, uh, you know, in, in the Siberia, in the Arctic circles, in the Antarctic circles, where the minute that an area that used to be uh, uh, snowpack covered is now covered by, say, grass or tundra or whatever, it absorbs more heat and actually causes that cycle to speed up. Um, and so there's a lot of concern in terms of the feedback mechanisms at which um, uh, th those types of changes can then exacerbate or accelerate the rate at which that snowpack, uh, you know, melts um, or the glaciers melt, things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. So uh, w one of the things you, you described a pretty broad ranging um, uh, set of circumstances we're finding ourselves in and how you plan for those depends on kind of your geography. But are there some basic assumptions that, that utilities can start with when they're doing their, their climate change preparedness and adaptation plans? I mean, what, what, if, if you're a utility and you're looking to, 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 you know, start that climate change preparedness, yeah. what, what, where do you start? What do you do? What? Yeah. Well, I, I generally like it when I talk to clients or have, you know, um, U.S. Council mayors. I know we had a conversation about this a couple years ago out in California. Uh, the, the first thing I, that I want to look at or think about is what is your system vulnerable to, right? So if are, are you a water utility, wastewater utility? Are you an integrated utility, water, wastewater, stormwater? Are you a municipality that's got transportation systems and data systems? Right. What, what is the purview of the assets that you're trying to mitigate risk against? And, and so you do a vulnerability assessment. So what are the vulnerabilities? It's not climate change is just one of many. Right. So it could be that, uh, you know, you've got regulatory changes coming that, that if, if they were to happen, they would force projects to be built sooner than you anticipate and, and change the way that you prioritize your CIP, your capital improvement program. Um, uh, you know, there's there's other things besides climate resilience. So again, I start with the vulnerability assessments, and I go, okay, what are your assets? What are they vulnerable to? Are they aging? Right, aging infrastructure is a big deal. Um, how are we? And and are we growing really rapidly? Or are we at five percent growth rate in this area? How are we going to keep up with demand? Is uh, and 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 you lay out all those vulnerabilities, and then once you lay out those vulnerabilities, you have a lot better idea of the bounds of the brackets in terms of well, what's the sensitivity to my system to this change or this particular change. For example, if the snow melts earlier in the season, does it really impact me or do I have reservoirs to capture that flow and really we can handle the timing issues? Um, you know, so you start to understand the cause and effect, you know, the sensitivity of your system to those various, you know, levers or variables uh, that can impact it, impact your system. So again, vulnerability assessments. Uh, we another another tool that's being used, um, and and you can do scenario planning, right? So you can you can start to play these scenarios out. So it's it's um, okay if this happens uh, according to our you know digital models or our computer models. What's the outcome from that? So it's it's you know understanding the vulnerabilities, setting your level of service expectations. Um, so. For example, systems are not binary, right? Like, it's not like you don't fail or pass. It's, you know, we have clients that say, hey, you know, we want to have a little reserve in the bank, right? We want to make sure that we're resilient to a stressor. So we want to make sure at all times we have a year of demand and supply. Okay, so you, you set, 
you set what your expectations are in terms of your customer delivery, your customer level of service, and then you can go through and scenario plan and test out these uncertain features and better understand, okay, if, if our rainfall amount changes, say, minus 15% over the coming 50 years, how did that impact our reservoirs? Do we need to build another reservoir? Should we go tap a groundwater supply? How would conservation help to mitigate that particular risk? So you can start to do a very stepwise fashion in terms of vulnerabilities, level service goals, you know, uh, strategies for risk mitigation. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the kind of the most advanced that I've seen lately is using, you know, computer optimization, digital twins, stuff like that. Uh, so that you can test thousands and thousands and thousands of scenarios, future scenarios against these strategies and say, which strategies make the most sense from a cost perspective, from a risk mitigation perspective, from a diversification of supply, uh, if, you're, or if you're a water utility, uh, and really test those things out um, so that you have a lot better idea of, like, uh, what strategies work and what strategies don't really move the needle. Yeah. Yeah. And real quick, before I move on, you, you said something towards the end of your, your response there that I found interesting about the digital twin and things like that. So how, how um, important is having that, that data and digitalization capability to climate change? I, I think it's, I think it's really important. And, and I guess um, I look at it, I look at it this way. It's, it's not just the data, but it's, it's the defense of the plan. So, uh, if you're a if you're a utility leader, and you're going to constituents and, and your stakeholders, and you're saying we have to build 500 million dollars worth of improvements to mitigate the risk of our system, you're going to get a lot of questions, especially when you start talking about rate increases and increasing water bills, utility bills. So I think it's really important to be able to put the you know be able to model the system, um, to be able to test various scenarios, to be able to explore. You know, what is this strategy versus this strategy? Be able to articulate that, present that to your stakeholders, not just the, not just the utility leadership, but the community itself. Because I firmly believe that when information about water is, is communicated and articulated to the community and they see the value of the strategies, it's much easier to, to say, we need to invest in these things to prevent these issues from happening, right? It helps protect my businesses, it helps protect my residents, whatever that is. Um, so I see the power of those techniques and those solutions. You know, it used to be kind of a black box, right? Utility would go build something and they'd settle with the stakeholders, hey, we built something. Now it's, it's much more like these are community-based projects, they're community-based resilient programs. Uh, you need to be able to explore all these different possibilities and be able to articulate where that money is going and how it's benefiting stakeholders. And that's one of the powers of computing and, and the digital twins and the optimization approaches that, you know, even 10 years ago wasn't nearly used like it is now. Uh, and I see that as a big benefit and a step forward in the industry and the way that we tackle and answer these problems. Great. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you on the transparency thing. I think that is so important, having having taken significant rate increases through the, the regulatory process. If if you can't articulate that and and uh, explain clearly why you need the rates, it's going to be problematic. Um, so so turning with that, that was we we've kind of talked a, a little about what utilities need to get to. What about the utilities that have already started um, uh, the the climate change preparedness planning and things like that? I know Black and Veatch has uh, prepared a new strategic directions report. 
uh, that kind of asked some of these questions and tried to find out where utilities were situated now. So can you talk a little about kind of the utilities that are that or that have planned for climate change? What, you know, what, what are they doing and what, what have you kind of learned from preparing that report? Yeah, I appreciate that. So, um, you know, again, utilities come in a variety of forms. If you're, if you're a water supplier, water utility, right? Um, I think some of the biggest stressors are, are, you know, demands, the population growth demands, and then the uncertainty that climate change drives, you know, drought, for example, drives into your system. So, what you're seeing utilities do is, again, the vulnerability assessments, where are we vulnerable, but then the mitigation strategies. So, you know, how does conservation support um, mitigating, you know, future stressors like climate change? You know, if the rainfall pattern changes, we go through another long-term drought, you know, in the state of Texas or California. Um, okay, let's have, let's have uh, conservation strategies that get enacted when that reservoir gets down to a certain level, right? So we're going to only water our lawns twice a day or once a week or no more outdoor irrigation. We're going to go, right, we're going to start using our water uh, much more selectively uh, for those needs and necessities. Another another thing that uh, diversification of sources, so you're seeing clients, instead of just having, you know, one reservoir with one intake, it's, hey, we need multiple intakes, potentially at different reservoir elevations so that we have the ability to put a straw into that uh, water system at a lower elevation. So in case, you know, that reservoir elevation drops, we're able to, you know, mitigate that. But it's diversification of those sources. So it's, you know, surface water, hey, where additional groundwater supplies, that was something that showed up pretty significantly in the report data is there's a lot of large utilities looking to diversify their supplies into groundwater systems as well. Uh, so that you've got multiple sources of water that you can pull from depending upon, right, the time of the year, uh, the the stressors uh, in the year, and if you encounter one of these, you know, climate change events that that causes a a significant. So I I would say, you know, diversification. Um, Another thing, you know, you you touched on this earlier, uh, some of those like smart well fields, like, using technology to better optimize where that water is coming from and groundwater system. I know smart well fields is something that's being used down in South Florida. You know, it's kind of, it's counterintuitive. You think Florida has water challenges, but, you know, South Florida is pretty flat and they're pretty much at sea level or right above sea level. And so a lot of their groundwater, a lot of their water supply comes from groundwater. So as you pump that groundwater, you can create, you know, seawater intrusion into the groundwater systems and cause brackish water to get into the freshwater. And so using, you know, um, smart well field designs that monitor the TDS and actually turn some pumps on and turn pumps off to try to better manage where that water is coming from out of the aquifer is one of the strategies that's being used uh, to better manage their water resources versus just blindly pumping all of them equally and ending up with some brackish water challenges. So it's kind of a, I would say it's kind of a cross um you know, the spectrum uh, in terms of, of, you know, diversification, conservation. And then I, th- I would say, lastly, it's it's using technologies like reuse, uh, non-potable, potable water, uh, you know, one water strategies that, you know, really tie the water, wastewater, and stormwater systems together so that, you know, historically, when you think of it as a silo, uh, stormwater was a problem, just get it out of your city. 
you know, wastewater was, was waste, right? So get it, you know, treat it and get it out. And instead of looking at them as resources, right? So this whole one water movement, the whole focus of that is think of it collectively, think of it holistically, and think of the cycle from cradle to grave. That stormwater could very well be your next form of drinking water if you infiltrate it in the groundwater and store it for future use. So that I would say that that's an innovation in the in the thinking of utilities, municipalities, you know, across the board, which is uh, water is a resource, it's not a waste. And how do we make better use out of that resource and make sure that we use it as many times as possible in an urban cycle uh, before it's discharged for, for use downstream? Yeah, yeah. And I think what you're describing there, the latter part was the, the whole one water movement, what Los Angeles is doing, uh, capturing its uh, wastewater and stormwater and reusing it, uh, trying to become more um, uh, n- kind of a, a, almost a net zero water system, so to speak. Um, yeah. So they don't have to. Right. Water independent is for sure. Cause you know, you, you, um, they've got a, just to elaborate on that, they've got a stormwater capture master plan, right? Which mm-hmm. is the whole idea there is to take stormwater when it actually does rain in Southern California and put it into uh, infiltration basins and get it into groundwater. So you can pump it back out later and use it as a source of supply. And it kind of kills two birds with one stone. It helps you with the supply, but they've also got a lot of uh, urban stormwater runoff challenges, which is uh, that's not necessarily clean water when it's coming out of the L.A. River. If you've ever stood there, looking at it, it can actually <laughs> contaminate the bays and, and cause, you know, swim beaches to be closed and other things like that from fecal contamination. So how do we, again, like you said, how do you connect the dots and make sure that, you know, you're using stormwater as a resource for your drinking water and you're helping reduce the amount of pollutants into the bays and harbors. Right, right. Perfect. So uh, the the other thing I wanted to to ask you about was what what concerns are being raised by um, by utilities and, you know, that you've reported on in the strategic directions report? And like, yeah, I think um, there's a number. I think there's a number of uh, concerns. Probably at the highest um, is is funding, right? There's a lot of stresses and a lot of challenges, and it's where is this uh, money coming from? Uh, and the there's no simple answer to that, but I, I guess just to speak for myself personally on this, um, the title of this podcast is very pertinent, right? It's the Water Values Podcast, right? And, and it's hard to drive home uh, – you know, the message that we need to articulate and communicate the value of water and the benefit it brings to our communities. This, this idea that water is just going to flow to your taps and be, you know, uh, ubiquitous, right? It's always available. It's always, you know, it's always been available is uh, a first world problem that the U S has had solved, you know, a hundred plus years ago where other parts of the world are, you know, people carry water five miles each way on their head just to have water to drink and, and, and cook and clean their clothes and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think we have, in my opinion, um, we have a funding challenge, but we have a priority issue. And the priority issue is that we need to invest in our water systems as much as we invest in our cell systems, as much as we invest in our cable systems and our fiber systems. Uh, it's really important. I mean, it's, it's the fundamental uh, ingredient to life and sustaining, you know, civilizations. I mean, we've had, you know, time, you know, and there's very, pretty dramatic examples of when you went through a drought, you know, you know, 
they had to force entire civilizations to leave because they couldn't grow food, didn't have water to drink. Um, and so uh, funding continues to be a challenge, but I think articulating the value of water, articulating the benefit the water does, and making sure that the industry is saying these things and making sure they're reinforcing that in the public, and as you said earlier, transparency is huge. We, we have to do as a better job as an industry to do that. So the second thing is, um, you know, we are seeing funding support coming in from the federal and state, you know, what, what not necessarily the latest stimulus packages related to COVID, but, you know, there's been Bureau of Reclamation, there's EPA, there's the FEMA BRIC program, Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities, that's new as of this year. So they try to stimulate investments in water smart, water conservation, uh, you know, uh, water quality improvements, that kind of thing. Uh, so I think it's, I think it's, you know, that public-private partnerships. There's a lot of strategies that we can do as an industry, regionalization approaches, where we can start to solve some of the funding issues. But I also think it starts with education of the value of our water systems to begin with. I, you can't do one without the other, in, in my opinion. I think aging, in, so setting funding aside, I think aging infrastructure is the other very difficult challenge. Uh, and it's prioritization. So, you know, you got you only got a certain amount of money. It's where do you invest the money? Do you invest it building resilience projects? Do you invest it in fixing the pipe that your concern might break next year? How do you do both at the same time? How do you, how do you make these trade-off decisions? And how do you do it in a defensible manner so that your boss or your utility leader, who might be more of a political appointee than they are a, 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 a utility appointee, right, uh, can feel good about the fact that you're investing the money wisely uh, and you're not just, you know, frittering your, your, the, the, the money away uh, needlessly for belts and suspenders you don't necessarily need in your utility. So I think, I think, I think the, the, the funding piece and then the aging infrastructure and, you know, how do we build resilient solutions, those things are, are almost counter, they, they come across uh, cross current sometimes and, uh, and clients, and people I work with need a lot of help trying to figure out how do I sort and prioritize those various risks and priorities. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. And you know, it's all the utilities are they're they're I think trying to make the pivot from being reactionary to being proactive. And and you know, we talked about data before and how that can help yep. make better informed decisions and things like that. Things like that. So I think that's kind of that's kind of where we're going with that. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I I wanted to, to chat about was. Uh, what is your sense of, of the timing of these things? Because as utilities are trying to figure these out, these things out, I mean, uh, you know, is, is, are they waiting too long? Are they making too, too, uh, decisions too quickly? Are they doing it just right? I mean, do you have any, did your, did the strategic directions report have any insights on that? So it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So if, if, uh, I remember right, about 60% of the respondents said they, they're, you know, they make a change or they make an improvement when they're worried that something's going to break and, 40-some percent said that they wait for regulatory changes. Um, that doesn't necessarily lend you to think that, you know, the industry is is uh, um, out ahead of the issues significantly, right? I mean, it, 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 it's – and I, and, I, and utilities are in a tough spot, right? They're, they're required uh, – you know, they're not profit-driven necessarily. I mean, some of them are, but they're, they're, they're you know, be the best stewards for that public money, uh, most of them. And they have to justify, hey, if we're going to go spell, say, for example, 
they want to add an intake because they only have one and they're concerned if that breaks, what do they do for supply? They have to justify the capital expenditure, which could be tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so they're in a tough spot. And I think, I think, you know, starting where you want to start is you want to really look at that vulnerability assessment. You want to look at that sensitivity analysis. In other words, if this happens, what happens, right? If this happens, what do we do? That really helps to inform, I think, your risks from the starting. And then you can build a strategy around, you know, public awareness, stakeholder awareness, communication, you know, like you said, uh, being able to provide, shine a light on what are our critical issues, uh, what could really impact us. I think I think when you when you start to be able to articulate those issues, um, that's when you can start to make progress. And being, if you're a leader in a utility and you want to be more proactive, you have to justify the spend. You have to justify the investment, and you need those tools and you need that communication strategy to be able to get out in front of things. Um, and I think I think I think there's another element is we, we need to be brave. We've got some pretty significant challenges in this industry. Um, and uh, kicking the can uh, down the road is just going to lead that problem to be the worst problem for our kids to solve. And the quicker we come to a realization of that, the quicker that we take ownership of the issues we have to solve collaboratively, I think um, uh, that helps to drive that proactive. But I'm, I'm very optimistic. It's, it's much more proactive than it was before. There's a lot of ch- the conversations changed significantly with the one water conversation the last 10, even last five years. Uh, Public-private partnerships are being encouraged. People are creating really unique strategies to solve some of these challenges. Um, So there's a lot of uh, innovation in the water sector uh, that I would say even maybe uh, 10, 15 years ago, minus technology, weren't happening, right? They they may be happening, but in little pockets, now it's, it's the conversation across the board nationally. Yeah. Yeah. Just, now, just out of curiosity, what, when a utility comes to you and wants to, uh, to plan, what kind of planning horizon are you looking at? I mean, what, yeah. what's the time that frame? Interesting. So we, we did ask that question in the survey. Um, and about, about 30% of the respondents actually said that they were planning over 40, 40 plus year planning horizons. Um, and then the other 60% was generally less than that, with a, with, with a lot focused on the 10-year and 20-year. I would say, you know, you can't ask enough questions to get all the nuance of those responses in any kind of survey generally. Um, we, we, but but my, my take on that is that generally where I see the longest planning horizons um, are focused on the areas where water scarcity is the most significant. So you, you, you go to the front range, you know, the Denver's of the world where, you know, their population rates off the charts, you know, they got to bring water from cross continental divide just to keep up with demand. You know, they're looking at 50 to 75 year planning horizons. Go to Tucson. I think they've got a hundred year plan. If I, if I, I think that's right. If I go out and Google it, I think it's a <laughs> supply plan. Um, these, these folks have to plan that far out in advance. There's, um, they're in a desert, right? They've got major, major infrastructure that they have to build uh, if they're going to provide significantly more water in the future. You know, we're talking about hundreds of miles of canals, right, to feed Phoenix from the Central Arizona Project uh, from the Colorado River system. I mean, these are big, expensive assets, uh, and you can't do that with a five-year planning horizon. There's just no way you can't. It, there's, there's, there's too many. 
uh, hurdles to, to plan and permit and implement those types of infrastructure projects with a much longer term horizon. And there's a money factor too, right? If you know you got to build something in 20 years to support your growth, you can start pocketing that money now and building up your nest egg so that you can actually invest in those things, not wait till the, the bill is due and then try to do it. And it's, it's, you know, so like I said, that, that kind of gives you an example of kind of the planning horizons we're seeing and, and where planning horizons really are longer uh, based on necessity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim, it's been fascinating talking to you. I've, I've learned so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Do you have, you know, if you had a, a kind of a leave behind message or a, a take home message for the listeners, yeah. what would that be? It's probably, it's probably a long one, but, uh, I'll, I'll just no problem. Leave it nope. with you. I, it's, it's, it's a little cliche, probably cliche, but, um, I, I think it deserves to be repeated. You know, as we look around the world today, whether it's water, geopolitical, right, we've got some really big challenges to solve. And the idea that we're going to solve these challenges in our silos and all, you know, split up as our individual, it, it, it's not going to work. We have to come together. Uh, we have to solve problems together. We have to work across sectors. Um, uh, the water industry can't do it alone. We need private sector. We need communities. We need collaboration uh, to be able to solve these challenges. And I really think the, you know, not belabor the point, but that one water movement is a good example of, you know, elevating the conversation to talk collectively about how do we solve, you know, all these challenges for our communities, not just water for water's sake. And I think, I think the other element of that in terms of working together and collaborating together and having a unified purpose of where we're going is we have to believe in science and we have to believe in data. Um, you know, the, we, we need to make data-driven de- de- decisions and try to get this stuff out of the political, uh, political world and focus on what's the data saying, what's the science saying, what are the actual issues, because that, that can really delay progress. It can really delay implementation. Um, I did look this up because I was thinking about this, you know, like take behind. Uh, you know, in 1900, we had 1.6 billion people on Earth. As of today, we have 7.6 billion. We've added 7 billion people in 120 years. So if we're going to provide, you know, uh, water security, food security, uh, you know, prevent mass migration from sea level rise impacting, you know, a lot of the coastal communities, uh, we've got to work together. We're stronger together. Uh, and I really believe that when we're connected uh, and working on these things together, you know, our, our success will be collective. And uh, t- to me, that's that's what I wanted to leave you with in terms of the way that I, I view how to solve these challenges. Yeah, well, that's, uh, those are great, great sentiments, great thoughts, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, uh, for those who want to find out more about you, more about Black and Veatch, and I, I will note that we'll put the link to the strategic directions report up on the show notes. Uh, but um, uh, for those who want to find out more about you and BNV, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So you just look at for Jim Schleiman. And if you want to share my name, uh, on sure. the podcast, just the spelling of it, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I try to share different things as I find them meaningful to the industry. And then, uh, www.bv.com is the black and beach homepage. Um, and we tried to, uh, you know, for example, the strategic directions report is available for download out on that. And, and we do that um, every year, you know, we try to provide those insights. So there's a couple places. And, and if you reach out to me and I don't know the answer, I'm happy to connect you with others in the organization that, 
Awesome. Well, again, Jim, thank you again for coming on. It was great to have you. And, and I also really pre- appreciate Black & Veatch's sponsorship of the podcast. It's, it's been great to have you guys as a partner. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, with that, it. yeah, you bet. With that, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, take care. All right, bye. What a terrific interview by Jim. Just a very thoughtful and common sense approach to helping utilities plan for the future. And I, I, I told you, you, you were going to find this information to be rock solid. And uh, again, very commonsensical in its approach to water utility planning. Well, let me know what you liked about the podcast. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values, water values. You can tweet at me using the handle at DTM one nine nine three, and you can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. You can sign up for the newsletter on the page that's hosted by Bluefield Research. Just Google the water values podcast. It should take you right to that page. Uh, Thank you again for tuning in and a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, those sponsors are Ziptility, Intera, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, and Black and & Veatch. What a terrific group of sponsors. Thank you so much. And in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.